Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us, and check out our site at Decentral.io. Now, to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today I'm joined by Scott Lewis, who is the co-founder of DeFi Pulse and someone I've been following on Twitter for a long time and have very much admired for uh, his reasoned and sort of well thought out takes on uh, whatever the issue of the day is, which uh, if you follow Twitter, you know is, is really not the norm. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Hey, Matt, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, speaking of Twitter, I noticed, I think one thing that kind of blew both of our minds was when Tom Brady was kind of tweeting at Vitalik Buterin, uh, the co-founder of Ethereum, who uh, Vitalik, I guess, had said that he didn't know who Tom Brady was. Uh, it was part of like a Time Magazine interview. <laughs> and so Tom Brady like said, like tweets it, like retweets it and says, hey, Vitalik, how's it going? I'd love to meet you someday. I'm a huge fan. And he, he called him a goat. So I think anytime the most winning NFL quarterback in history calls you a goat, you got to take that. Um, yeah, it's one of those weird things that just happened on a given day and on crypto Twitter. Yeah, it's it's I thought it was pretty cool because it's sort of like, you know, I mean, Vitalik's like a genius and he's not like the most like typical, typical guy in the world. And so it's sort of like the the prom king being like, hey, that guy's all right. Like he's he's not just all right. He's awesome. Like, shut up. Um, yeah, and yeah, so I don't know. It was just sort of like a, a fun moment in grown up land. Yeah, um, yeah, it totally exists. I totally agree. Um, it's been interesting to see like the world catching on to Vitalik a little bit, I guess, over the last little while. Like I've known him for about five years or so. And obviously, once you get to know him or interact with him, you realize just, you know, how amazing he is in a lot of different ways. And now it's just so, and then you know that, but then like now the, the larger world seems to slowly be catching up to him. So it's, it's kind of fascinating time. Yeah, he's, he's really like a, counter um like sort of like the way a lot of people become famous like sort of like in the, the donald trump model of like saying outrageous things and getting attention for it and creating polarization he's sort of like the very counter like like the, the counter trend to that and i think a lot of people find that refreshing and kind of the way yeah. he communicates in like a reasonableness first kind of way yeah for sure um so I read that you grew up in um, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I did, were you? I did. And I, I also read that you were a, a trade, like a commodities trader. Were you? Um, did you grow up among like cotton traders and stuff like that down there? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, I, uh, I I went to school in Chicago, ah. and uh, played a bunch of poker while I was in school, and then after school went down to the floor of the uh, Chicago Board Options Exchange okay uh for a few years all right i was actually trading options but didn't trade commodities till a little bit later okay cool. um 
Well, yeah. let's uh, let's let's go back a little bit. What was it like to grow up in um, Nashville? I don't know. I mean, I liked it. You know, I was a kid, so you didn't really get that much exposure to like the the culture that Nashville has now become very famous for. But I know. Did you was, like? What did you like to do as a kid? Were you good in school? Were you playing sports? I was good at math, but I don't think I'd be described as being that great in school. Um, I think my parents would have preferred I studied a little bit harder, <laughs> but sort of, I don't know, I guess like I, I did all right enough to like, I don't know, go to college and stuff. Uh, so, so that was fun. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think I had a pretty, pretty typical, typical childhood. I think one thing that really affected me was I, uh, I went to kind of like a all like my 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 family so my whole family are from the north kind of moved down here like when I was a like right before kindergarten uh but uh I went to kind of like a prep school that was like like all all boys school um that had like a deeply rooted tradition um going back to around the civil war uh -huh. and so I think that really sort of like uh it really affected kind of like how I viewed the world um, in that like it sort of didn't seem all that fair. Um, and so I think that's sort of like, I didn't really know that much, I guess, about a lot of stuff then, but uh, it sort of like affected kind of like, hey, like maybe if the same families that are still doing really well that were doing well in like 1870 are still doing really well in Nashville today, maybe that's not like, a way we want to build a society and economy for the long haul. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, um, yeah, and I, I would assume that going forward, that like you said, kind of informed like the way you viewed the world, and probably one of the things that would make kind of Web three or Ethereum sort of uh, an interesting proposition. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of like maybe maybe if you get out of like the American like social, political, economic like situation and you look more globally um, and you start to realize like how many advantages like people in like a well-governed liberal democracy with like good rule of law have when you're like forming businesses, getting bank accounts, um, visiting other countries, immigrating to other countries. And you start to think of like, hey, like are all these structures that have always been with us, like really the most just way for the world to exist. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if you look at sort of like uh, how, how blockchain sort of like just are like oblivious uh, to national, national borders and kind of like everything that happens on them, it's more like about going out of your way to comply with the existing structures, which is good-ish, um, but it's it's sort of like the default case is we don't have those same sort of like hierarchical structures, right? And they have to be like forcefully added back in, like they aren't the default case. But I think in like the more traditional economy, they are the default case. I think that's a big difference. Yeah, that's an interesting part about this whole like experiment. And it's more than an experiment to me now, but it is true that you people are kind of choosing what they want to sort of bring in from the traditional world and, and sort of remaking it as as needed, right? Like because there isn't really 
there's no guardrails, there's no nothing. So, so a lot of people like you who are building these things like have to make choices about, okay, what kind of structures do we want in, in this sort of wide open new space? Yeah, and it's like if I, if we form a, an organization in like a traditional economy or web two, web 2.0 sort of mindset, like my claim to the economic value accrual that I happens with my partners or the people I'm collaborating with, right? That all has to be enforced by a court system where I could sue someone if they drink my milkshake. Um, but if you're talking about tokenized projects where sort of this idea that, um, that the claim on value accrual should, doesn't, should be designed in a way that it's not guaranteed by a threat of lawsuit later, um, it lets you collaborate with a much wider group of people without needing to be able to sue them later to ensure that yeah, you get the accrual of your, labor, your work. Yeah, it's a great kind of radical way of incentivizing people. I, I, that's one of the things that, that really appeals to me. Um, yeah. But back, back to Nashville, um, what was your favorite summer job? None of, none of them? <laughs> I, I mean, what, I was, what was I the worst summer a, job you had? I mean, it that way. Well, I, I would say I said the one I remember most fondly. I worked in a donut shop, oh, yeah. uh, basically every Sunday morning, for almost all of high school. Wow. Um, and so that was that's sort of like what I always think about as my high school job, um, and like a lot of memories, a lot of like. Just, that's an early shift, right? Yeah, yeah. Six a.m. Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, pretty. Nice. pretty <laughs> pretty pretty early Sunday. Yeah. But uh did you get your fill of donuts or do you still love them? Uh, about the third or fourth week you work there, you realize you don't want any more donuts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I delivered Domino's pizza in college and I still have a really hard time ever eating Domino's. It's just the, <laughs> the smell of it brings me back to like remembering how it was actually made in the kitchen and stuff so <laughs> yeah yeah i mean not even that it's just like you know you know so much of that taste you could have and then you're like okay that's that's yeah. good enough yeah but, um, um so you ended up in chicago at, at, in college and that was how you sort of got introduced to the trading culture kind of that's part of been part of chicago forever yeah yeah um one of the one of, one of the trading firms had a pretty one of the susquehanna uh, international group had a pretty big presence at that time on like the floors in Chicago and yeah I just got an got an internship on the floor and then came back full-time yeah when I graduated and is that where being good at math came in like especially with options was that something you could do in your head and sort of like stay ahead of people yeah yeah that and they they also like really at that time um which is like mid-2000s they're very interested in hiring like uh like poker players and, and gambler types i think now like they've transitioned to more like a more like super geniuses from mit um yeah. at that time northwestern was still within the schools they recruited from um and so, so i was able to get a job so were you actually like playing poker tournaments or something is that how they found you or oh no i just no i was a. Uh, that was like the no, they didn't find me. I, I found them, uh, but that was like the, the golden age of online poker. Yeah, um, okay. Back before What's your favorite poker game? I don't know. I really burnt out about a decade ago, but yeah, probably just regular hold'em. Right on. <laughs> um, 
And so what was it like being down on the floor of the CBOE? It was interesting. Um, it was like a weird time of like transition because there were like a lot of the old school traders there, but everyone had computers. And yeah. so things were like rapidly getting much more quantitative and mathy. Um, and so it was sort of like, I mean, eventually like, you know, it wasn't that far after the floors like started getting shut down completely. And people are just like, well, why are we on the floors? No, we're all just trading on our computers in the trading pits. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it was good because you, 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 you got a chance to talk to the other market participants in a way that doesn't really happen when you're just all trading on computers. And so you sort of like, I don't know, it was a little bit more like intimate of like a competition. Yeah, there's a lot of information, right? Like who's talking to who or who looks like they're nervous or whatever, or, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and also just like how people think about like what business they're in, um, which is like, actually, I don't know. I found it to be like a pretty diverse like set of ideas about like what you what, what we're down there doing and like how you're making money. Yeah. Um, were you trading for yourself or were you working for Susquehanna? Uh, yeah, that was trading for Susquehanna. Um, it's hard to make a lot of money working for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, just like one of their, one of their, one of their traders. Um, right on. And what, what year are we talking about here, roughly? I think I was a clerk. I graduated 05. So I was like assistant trader or clerk for like nine months. And then about after a year, I got on a badge. Um, and then I was just you know, 2006 trading. And then, so were you down there for the financial crisis? Uh, no, because early 2008, I moved, uh, upstairs to their, like, a uh, commodity desk. Oh, we focused on like volatility arbitrage and some market making. And so I was actually on like the fixed income commodities desk, uh, when the shit hit the fan. So, uh, but you went through the financial crisis through, during that job. Oh yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Uh, the markets, it was like weird. The markets were like so messed up and wide. It was like every trade made tons of money, but um, all of the firms like medium and longer term positions were getting just, I don't know if I can say that word. 2008 was not a good year for most trading firms. Let's put it that. Um, and then also people were like, there was this weird uh, dissonance or divergence between the people that were like really on the insides of the financial system were like worried about the future of a developed economy coming out of it. <laughs> and then people on the streets were like, why are we doing this bailout? We don't want to give these bankers money. And it's like, they're literally like, you know, the bankers themselves are worried if like the financial system will exist in four months. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so it's just like this like crazy thing, like even at work is just like, and then like everyone at home's like, oh yeah, the market was down a lot, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's like, that's well, only the beginning of the problems. Well, have you seen the stock market? <laughs> so yeah, and so it's like, uh, yeah, yeah that, that reminds me also at that same time, people were like, why are we bailing out the automotive industry? 
in this country, you know, and it's like, are you crazy? You don't want to lose that manufacturing like capability. That's like a wartime like, sort of necessity if, if it you know yeah, comes like, down to it. Do you um, want to cook your meals by fire? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like, like people just because things have been like the way they are for a while, people sort of like think that's the only way stuff can be. Yeah. Did that going through that crisis like touch upon the way you felt at, at your private school in Nashville, where it's like sort of like the did it um, touch on those same sort of themes for you at all about like kind of the structures of power or like who keeps you know being okay I mean, and who doesn't? I don't know. I I think it I think it really impressed upon me that like kind of like that no one knows what they're doing really because it's like everyone that was like you know supposedly experts all this stuff it's like for all like the last like i don't know two three years before the crisis it was like the really smart people they could do math and like that really like understand how to price things like they knew all this stuff was priced wrong. And then like, you have all like, just like the money in the system being being like pumped into things based on what banks say they're worth, even when the banks are saying they're worth not what they're worth. And it's yeah. just like, like the incentives in a financial system do drive people's behavior and there's not like always that some someone that's like overlooking the entire thing to make sure things aren't going to go completely wrong. Yeah, I was, uh, I just did a, one of these podcasts with Chris Giancarlo, who was, um, before he was chairman at the CFTC, he was at this trading firm called GFI, it's like an interdealer broker. They were really big in the inter, uh, credit default swap market. And a couple of days before the crisis, he told me this story that he got a call from somebody at the New York Fed and they were like, kind of like, hi, um, what do you guys do? And uh, Chris is like, oh, you know, we, we put buyers and sellers together in like the credit default swap market in a private, you know, marketplace and blah, blah, blah. And the Fed guy was like, well, can you, like, what do those markets look like right now? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, literally, like he said, it was like three days before Lehman went bankrupt. Um, <laughs> this is the New York Fed. They are the primary banking regulator, you know, like they should know what's going on at Morgan Stanley and at Goldman Sachs and at Lehman Brothers. That's their job. And so, yeah, just like that, that idea that you said about like nobody really knows what they're doing. Uh, that definitely, I remember that feeling too back then. And I've felt that feeling for the last three years, probably. <laughs> yeah. And like, and like if you think about like, it's actually kind of like one of like my, my like, biggest dreams for why decentralized finance sort of gives us a chance for like a more stable and productive financial system is like all of that like the the sort of like the inflated values kept going for so much longer and no one realized how big the problem was because like there was no like market-wide transparency yeah there's yeah the transparency down was down into these like cogs and, and it's like they, they try to address like, it's sort of like generals building an army to win the last war, right? Like they addressed everything that caused like 
literally the last crisis and like so many huge efforts to like force transparency like they needed it to have solved the last financial crisis but like if you have to like if you have to try so hard to get insight into a closed system versus like having a transparent by default system for DeFi, it it feels like at scale when all market participants can have like like you know clear glass like a fish tank view of all of these little like parts of the market and yeah. form like an informed opinion about the state i think you end up at a, like a very at like a meta level with much more efficient markets than are possible in the like our 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 i like our our best case defi marketplace is just much like more robust than our best case traditional finance yeah market and it's interesting in this world and like web3 or defi um i think that when you do get into a, an area where there's a lack of transparency like the code itself i think that's where you get problems still which is interesting you know obviously a lot of this stuff is open source but who has the time to go check everybody else's code right and so the the big kind of fuck ups you hear about are, are typically somebody you know left a back door in some code or they you know they they have a bug and it's like that's where that's where the issue is coming from rather than like like you're saying because everything else is rather transparent and you can like track money and see what's what and so um but yeah, yeah wall street has always thrived on a lack of transparency that's how they make a lot of their money um because if nobody knows what the price is then you get to tell them what the price is so <laughs> yeah i would agree with that yeah it's um, a great model if you can pull it <laughs> off yeah i would uh it's much easier to trade against uninformed customers yeah. if you're like a south side desk so when uh so crypto was just kind of being born around this time uh, out, out of the crisis. When did you first come across it? Uh, I first came across Bitcoin like like pretty early, but it like what Bitcoin was in like 2012, 2013, like it was like kind of interesting, but like it wasn't something I really wanted to, to dig down in. Like mm-hmm. it did just strike me as kind of like an another commodity like a a weird commodity um and like i mean like you know i've never really been one to go in on like some of like the austrian ideas or like some of like the the hard money type stuff and like hey we need a new gold standard sort of ideas that like drive people to think bitcoin's going to solve a bunch of problems and so it's sort of like okay that's cool it's interesting it's gotten this far be fun to see where it goes but it wasn't until like really um i kind of fell down the ethereum rabbit hole in like late 2016 that it's like hey this is like could be like foundational infrastructure for like a different way for the world to work yeah what was there a certain project that really grabbed your like uh or just piqued your curiosity um well actually the i actually didn't hear about ethereum first i heard about augur um, which, well, if they're doing stuff, I don't know about it. But at that time in late 2016, that kind of auger prediction markets was kind of one of the high status projects yeah. in the space. But like, I, I just read like a, it was like just a random like blog post about how like there was like a, this prediction market that they thought they could build that would like be running like fully decentralized. 
and so like the idea that there was like something that could make that possible is like really interesting and then i found out that like oh ethereum was like the thing they were building on that could make that and then i sort of like just like started reading 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 yeah and then about like i remember writing about auger back then because i think somebody put up a contract about whether donald trump would be assassinated before the election so it got a lot of attention (laughs) as you know when it's open source Uh, that anybody can put up anything they want yeah well it it feels like a big problem but then they were like okay we're going to change the rules of like the oracle if it's an unethical market it resolves unethical and not yes or no and that's like okay we fixed it you know but it's like kind of those things like you know someone maybe has to do it before like people are spurred to think about how to fix it but yeah i think sometimes like yeah like the runaway the runaway decentralized uh, autonomous robot thing is sort of like well at the end of the day it's all social consensus yeah right like if everyone's like that ethereum blockchain isn't the real ethereum blockchain and everyone agrees this other blockchain is Ethereum blockchain. The other blockchain is the Ethereum blockchain. Like it's like just like we all agree that like uh, that person owns that house, right? Like the soil doesn't and the air doesn't know who owns it, right? It's just a social construction that that person owns it. Um, and I think it's like I think yeah. I mean I think like people a lot of people can agree that like some really bad stuff is bad and then like change it yeah were you um still trading for susquehanna as you were kind of falling down the rabbit hole no no i was uh by that time i was uh i was just like trading on my own okay um but yeah because i was yeah i was only working for susquehanna for about four years total so what made you want to kind of jump all the way in and just go into crypto Mm -hmm. I think uh, I, I I just like started, was it like four or six weeks? I was just like, okay, I'm gonna do like 25% of my time trading crypto, mm-hmm. three quarters of my time trading like the, the normal stuff. And then like after the trial period, it was like, okay, let's cancel the Bloomberg subscription. This is worth more of my time. Uh, like even though i definitely found the crypto stuff more interesting it was also like you know better financially so it's like okay yeah um but at that time i wasn't really trying to build i was just like you know i trying to be active and good contributor in the community or whatever but mainly focused on just like uh speculation or you know trading trading for swaps yeah and then yeah, yeah of course doing ICOs. um and then i guess what so was there something that kind of drew you out of that mentality into wanting to build stuff and sort of like get yeah you know? yeah there was like uh I was pretty pretty active on like bitmex um but i was also doing like there were a lot of like founders new ico projects that i was like really exciting like their visions and so i was contributing money to them but then there were a lot of other projects that were like just scams right (laughs) yeah like not even like the things that were like just full out like we're just gonna steal your money we're sorry but like (laughs) the ones that were like i don't know just like 
maybe half baked over yeah like overblown shit they were never gonna ship um and it was like pretty clear like this is like this is absurd right and so we just like we started around um me and me and my my co-founder uh ronnie we just like uh we decided we're just gonna do like a like a wikipedia to talk like to where everyone that like kind of cared about like hey this is a scam because of this or like this literally doesn't make sense and they're making that up could like put all their stuff into one like uh one place yeah and so like our very very first mvp we actually like literally forked the software that runs wikipedia media yeah and then the second one like after we started that and some people were contributing we we moved to like we built our own sort of like content it was like a clearinghouse for ico projects for people to just kind of check them out before investing yeah yeah and like a lot of people like researching them at the time but it was sort of like it kind of like weighed on you like we like we were really excited about what we thought were like the higher quality projects but then like you know you're, you talk to your friends or like other people like uh, on like Reddit, which was kind of like a really important community spot at the time. Like, you know, people were like also really excited about projects that were definitely not just going to take their money. And mm-hmm. so it's sort of like sad because like these are kind of like your community members, but there wasn't like a good way to like organize that information. Um, and so we just thought that would be like a good way to do it. It wasn't yeah. really a business. It's more um, like, like a public service type thing. And had you like, um, had, did you already know how to code or when does the coding like come into this or are, do, you, do you code? Never, no, never, no, no, okay. no, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, Sorry. I'm like, I didn't mean to accuse you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, I'm, I'm like the world's like, like backward in trading. I like write my own Python scripts and stuff and like do some algorithmic like uh, trading strategies. But like my code is like not what you'd want in a professional uh, repository. So so like no, I don't code. I I can kind of like read it and stuff, but like that's about as yeah as as far as I'll go. So you're more the idea guy, the implementation guy, and then you've got some of your co-founders who are the coding people or whatever. Yeah, I guess. I mean, like for D five halls, I was doing all the product stuff at the beginning um i also did all the like design work on that um but like at this point i'd say like recruiting is like my my core like i don't know recruiting like good people is like basically my my real job at this point i'd say and is that for the companies you're involved with or just across the board um yeah recruiting people for them although i guess now i say it's my real job but uh we actually we started a little like support organization and now we actually have some more recruiters i guess helping them out now i'm not quite sure i mean recruiting recruiters and now do i do the recruiting um but i mean i but uh yeah i mean because like you know finding people is like and finding like people that are going to do good work and be leaders and like take take ownership of stuff is like really really important for like scaling organizations yeah you've you've uh i was reading your twitter feed and you've you've said a few things along those lines about like 
DAOs about decentralized or autonomous organizations and how how difficult it is. And I, that's really the the number one thing in a DAO, right? Is you got to have a community first. I think you can rally a, a, around, like, and then you get an <sighs> idea, and you all sort of try to work for that idea. But it's really difficult. Yeah, I would say if you think about like, like, it's not like they were like literally the first DAO, but like, you know, Yearn, the Yearn launch was like, you know, this first like, like this first experiment. It's sort of like the the type of DAO, like the snapshot driven yeah. DAO and like interform driven DAO. Um, there was really like just like kind of like flu free flowing um and there's been a lot of different projects doing that that, that like but, the simplicity of urine right is that you're earning interest on your crypto right? oh yeah yeah that's, the product of urine is, is that's very is yeah very straightforward and a lot of people want to get in on that i think right so that's, yeah well that that was good but like the, the way the actual organization like especially before um like they they've iterated a lot on and like really really developed what they're doing but like that first month of like what is the yearn now yeah like what is yearn governance was just like complete chaos um <laughs> and uh but yeah like i think i don't it'll be interesting i, I don't think i don't think we've like i don't think we've seen like the DAO format that just works yet. Yeah, I agree. I I think, yeah, if you have a, a, a ready built community that you've already been working on for several years, and then you can like introduce this idea, there'll probably be enough of those people that might make it work. Um, but yeah, it, it there's a lot of challenges um, for sure. Um, but I wanted to like, ask about DeFi pulse and, and what that is for people who are listening is uh, it's a it's a metric uh, that Scott has created where you you look at something called total value locked uh, and that means how much cryptocurrency is um, basically in the treasury of, of whatever protocol you're talking about um, and you actually invented that idea like about total value locked right can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that um, yeah so so sort of like the the, the need, um, it, it wasn't like, I have this idea total value locked, let's make a site about it. it. It was more coming from like this problem in that um, like, especially when like transaction costs are small, um, it's really cheap to like just make, make an address that sends transactions automatically or make a ton of addresses that send transactions automatically to like create the impression of daily active users, right? And so if you're yeah. looking at something like transaction counts or user counts, um, it's a very, very cheap metric to fake. And if we're living in sort of like a, a blockchain ecosystem where some of like the less ethical or less authentic projects don't mind uh, paying for good metrics if it raises their token valuations. Yeah. Um, and sort of like we saw some, like, especially like with EOS, um, there was some very, there's a, there's a site that kind of ranked, ranked all the dApps by uh, user counts. And there's some very suspicious bunching 
amongst user counts to get to the top of the uh, at the top of the leaderboard yeah um and the actually the leading game uh was this game called eos nights and everyone talked about it like these user accounts were proof that like eos is like the real ethereum killer being an ethereum killer was like very much what everyone was trying to be at that point um and but the thing is i don't think anyone that was talking about eos nights had ever played it because it was a mobile game that wasn't available in any mobile app store what you did is you went to the website and there was like um, a picture of a phone on the website. And so you're sitting at your desktop, maybe playing a picture on the phone. I actually couldn't get the game to work, but I don't think it was that important. But like the idea that like the next hit game was a mobile game running on a SIM of a mobile phone in a desktop website was like the most ridiculous proposition in the world. Yeah. Um, but like this was the game that was being cited by all of like your favorite crypto funds there was proof that eos was like winning right and it was sort of like like we didn't make DeFi pulse to like say anything about eos like it didn't even list eos but um what we what i did want is wanted some metric that was like that was not free to fake right and so if you have if if people have taken a million dollars of stuff and put it in the protocol in your smart contracts, they're kind of like paying in two ways. Because first, there's like the opportunity cost to not use that those assets to earn a return elsewhere. Like they're choosing a return with the protocol. And then they're also taking smart contract risk. And so if you wanted like let's say you think the smart contract is like 1% per year and maybe the opportunity cost is like 2% per year. I don't know, whatever notes you want. That million dollars of TVL to fake is going to cost $30,000 a year. Yeah. And so if we're thinking about like, how do we create ways of judging progress that are resistance, that are resistant to civil attacks, like most of the web two metrics aren't, really like that useful for that and we we still to this i mean you know you could just you could watch people fake them right to create their narratives around six around like inauthentic narratives around like yeah. success it, it's interesting there's a real theme of fairness i think through the projects that you've taken on like the ico kind of like you know you want to make sure everybody knows what's what and then there's this metric that can be gamed here um, by daily average users, but so let's find a different one that's fair and, and you know, almost or, or much, much harder to fake um, when you talk about total value locked. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering um, for, for listeners, if you could sort of, there's about four different categories, I guess, that you guys track on DeFi Pulse. Um, I think it's interesting for people just to know, like, I think the term DeFi gets thrown around a lot, but could you just kind of like describe like what the different categories are and just like a sentence or two, just so people can get a sense of like, this is what's happening and like web three DeFi stuff. Yeah. So, so I think the, the, if I'm thinking about like, what is like the, 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 like the absolute core of decentralized finance um, it's, it's two things. It's decentralized exchange, right. Which is like the, the peer to peer. 
there's no intermediary basically yeah yeah like like you're just like exchanging based on protocols like i deposit as an lp in uniswap you trade with my assets in uniswap it's done by protocol there's no like there's no entity that could like go register as a broker deal with the sec mm -hmm. um just like on that bit of ridiculousness um from our regulators asking protocols to register. Um, but, uh, and then the second core piece is kind of like lending. And so lending, and we just like, really it's like collateralized lending. Like I put down $2 million of ETH um, and I borrow a million dollars of stable, or I, I pull out a million dollars of stable coin. Um, or, I mean, that's kind of like the most common flow, but. Mm -hmm. You can kind of put down any collateral that they would give. Yeah, you and then that forward. that's you yeah. would then maybe go buy something with the, those stable coins, right? So it's a kind yeah. of way of getting money to increase your investment opportunities. Yeah, yeah, and so and, and so like I'd say those two are like the 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 core the the core parts of like what 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 what's like at like the the heart of DeFi. But I think now you're also seeing like. Um, like uh like decentralized perpetual swaps um as like derivatives kind of like doing pretty well um you know dydex doing some pretty good volume um so perpetual swaps are when you get can you explain that one i can't i've heard yeah. that before but i can't remember exactly what the uh metric is or the, the mechanism yeah so so it's sort of like a derivative that never settles or settles continuously um, or, or over short, short frequencies. Um, basically, it's like, okay, let's say, let's say we had a perpetual swap on oil. Um, if oil, if our reference price for oil was $100 and the perpetual swap was trading at $101, it would be mispriced by a yeah. dollar. And so let's pretend... Uh, let's just pretend like the parameters were such that so when there was a 1% um, divergence between the reference price and the price the perp swap was trading is 1%. All of the people that demand to stay long pay 1% or $1 to all of the people that are short. And so if the, think of it sort of like there's the reference price moving and then there's the perp swap price moving around that. And sort of like, if you're long, you probably don't actually want to pay a whole dollar just to be long the perp swap for that extra 24 hours. And so you're incentivized to sell. And so it's sort of like the more the perp swap gets away from the reference price, the more the rubber band like pulls sellers from the long to yeah. get it back down to price or the rubber band like pulls it shorts um, to buy back so it gets back to the reference price. Yeah. And so it's sort of like this nifty thing that was uh, there's sort of like, uh, I think it was invented by like crypto, crypto uh, CFI things, um, but like sort of became like the standard for how like, uh, rather than like the futures that you might see more in like a traditional financial market. And so you've been doing DeFi Pulse for about three years now or? Yeah. yeah. How have you seen things change? I know we always talk about DeFi summer 2020, right? That was like a big splash. NFTs were kind of the next big thing to come out. Like, 
did NFTs take all the, the, the juice out or like has DeFi just kind of continue, like continued to kind of slowly cool, do cool stuff in the background or wh where's that, where's the trajectory going in your opinion? I mean, it uh, definitely when M NFTs came up, there were like some people that sort of tried to be like NFTs or DeFi, who's going to win? <laughs> um, but it's sort of like the biggest challenge that like anyone that like the decentralization movement faces is always has been and will be for a lot longer time is like the total addressable market. Like how many people have like Web3 native wallets? How many people are comfortable doing like an on-chain transaction, whether that's mainnet or Polygon or on a roll-up or Avalanche or wherever, right? And as that's like, like, you know, when there's like a thousand people that are doing on-chain transactions, right? There's only a limited number of dApps that will like be able to like exist or protocols on the chain that will exist like in a feasible way for that small group of people. And like every time that like population of Ethereum natives or Web3 natives more broadly, like 10Xs, the amount of stuff that it makes sense to build for that group of people, like, I don't know if it exactly 10x is maybe it does i don't know but it's like getting more users is like or getting more available possible users is like the challenge and it's sort of like it's more like each thing that's doing well is like an extra or on the boat right like it's it's not like it's like nfts are helping DeFi much like yeah actually. And this is another thing I think you've touched on in Twitter is it's it's a um, it's a great incentivized like mechanism in, inside of crypto, but it's also not a great way for devs to get paid um, because you know a lot of isn't it a lot like a lot of times what they're creating and, and correct me if I'm wrong it it's um you're not really charging any money for it <laughs> you know oh, like, uh... I, I know there's obviously gas fees and stuff like that, but unless you have a coin attached to a project, like I think the economics are still a little tricky. Am I wrong about that? Uh, well, so I, th I think that's a lot of it. It comes down to um, the, the protocol engineers that are actually building Ethereum itself versus the, the engineers that might work on like an NFT project or a DeFi mm -hmm. project. And sort of like, if you're, if you're building Ethereum protocol, like, you sort of are making like whatever, whatever, whatever your grants say you'll make. Yeah. Um, like mainly from Ethereum Foundation, but not exclusively from Ethereum Foundation. And I think it's actually almost like a, a flip of that problem in that, uh, like, the demand for like those sorts of engineers is so high across the market that like maybe some of like the rates that made sense in like 2016 are no longer the market rates and sort of like in a sense like uh you know ethereum protocol development may have to pay more because ethereum's been so successful right? yeah and i guess i guess that's a better way of, of like the lens of the ethereum foundation is interesting because like how do they they only had so much money to begin with and then you know they spent it all and it's like I think it's been a tricky situation, right? Like in terms of they well, can get they, grants and stuff, but 
Like they're not they, really making any money, are they? Not... Well, they owned a lot of eth. <laughs> and that eth went from a dollar to like a lot more than a dollar, like twenty nine hundred yeah. right now or something. Yeah. Um well, I think it was looking scary in the in the big bear market when eth got down to like eighty or a hundred bucks. Um I don't think they're really capital constrained anymore. Yeah. But the, yeah, there there was always this idea that the protocol engineers were both working for their grants, but also for social capital. Um, and I, I, whether that was exactly the right policy or not, I would definitely say it was reasonable. But I think the one thing that's missing is just exactly how much more valuable those sorts of engineers has become over mm -hmm. the last five years. Mm -hmm. And I think it's time to like reflect that. What do you think is needed to sort of get more people, like you were saying, to become comfortable with a native wallet or to do on-chain transactions? Like what's, what's, if there's one or two things that you could have, if you snapped your fingers, is, is that, is it a matter of that? Or what, what's the, what's I mean, going to help know, just like spread adoption, I guess. Building cool stuff that people want to do. I mean, I like, I've, it's like, I can only have time to do about like a fifth of like the on-chain things I'd like to right now. And just like the pace of like people, people coming up with like really in original and creative ideas is like just mind blowing versus like when I first started. Mm -hmm. And so like, I mean, it feels like it's coming. Like, I, like, I don't know. There's just like, you know, every like, every like new cool thing that kind of like creates its own, like, Every new project gets a lot of their users from the existing community, but they also sort of like carve a bit outside that like existing community line. And I think just really that that like process that's going, continuing to go is. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, work. I, know. I know like my son, he's 13 and he heard about Axie Infinity and, you know, wanted to figure it out and like so. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. Like, let's, let's get you a wallet and I'll show you, you know, like, well, this is your key and your seed phrase. And, you know, my little sister's boyfriend also plays Axie Infinity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of like, cool. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, well, Hey Scott, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Um, loved hearing about your story and, and about DeFi pulse and where, where you think things are headed. Um, it was great to see you. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It was really good to talk with you. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on. It was, it was fun. Yeah. All right. We'll talk soon. All right. See you. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day. <laughs>